Hello, everyone, and welcome to Staffer. I'm your host, Jim Papa, a partner at Global Strategy Group and a former staffer. This show is about the people who work in government and politics at any level. We hear their stories, how they got started, what they learned from the job, their highs and lows, and what they're doing with all those experiences today. I am so pleased to be able to present to you my conversation with Steve Schmidt. Uh, Steve is a nationally renowned political strategist and communications professional. He has become very well known uh, throughout his career as being a turnaround specialist, um, taking campaigns that were left for dead and getting them back on track and all the way to victory. Uh, he worked on a lot of notable campaigns uh, in within the uh, George W. Bush re-election war room at the White House. He turned around Governor Schwarzenegger's come-from-behind uh, election win. And he also was the lead day-to-day operations head for John McCain's 2008 campaign, um, which also had a near-death experience uh, before he became the nominee. In 2018, uh, Steve described the Republican Party as, quote, fully the party of Trump. And he joined a group of other Republican operatives and former Republicans in creating something called the Lincoln Project, a super PAC of of operatives that are working in opposition to the re-election of Donald Trump in 2020 and have gotten a lot of attention for the content that they are putting out on a daily basis. I spoke with Steve on August the 27th, remotely, of course, given the circumstances, and I hope you enjoy it. Steve Schmidt, welcome to Staffer. Thank you. Great to be with you. Um, So I like to start talking with my guests uh, about where they began their life and how they got into politics. And I understand you grew up in North Plainfield, New Jersey, an area that I'm somewhat familiar with. Uh, You were vice president of your senior class and voted by your peers most likely to succeed. Did you know then that you loved politics and wanted to, you know, do something with it? Or did that come later? I always loved it. I um, we had a good family friend who was the local councilman and little kid, seven, eight years old, would always tag along, handing out the stickers, you know, doing all that stuff. There was a woman named Rose McConnell who was the Republican councilwoman. I was her paper boy, and I got to I got to know her. I was always fascinated by it. And then in 1978, my first my first campaign I ever did anything on was on Election Day, was handing out stickers for uh, Bill Bradley at the polls. Um, My first race was a Democratic one, and uh, it was because Bill Bradley played for the Knicks. And I thought that was pretty cool. So I was I was for him in 1978. And, you know, as as we as I got older, I. you know, I, I loved it. I, I have a vestigial memory of of somehow evading the lunch monitors at elementary school. And my mom was a teacher, so we we had a babysitter at a at a house, a woman who was about a block and a half from the school where we'd hang out for an hour. You know, as my mom, you know, who taught in the district, then would come and pick us up. But I made it to her house to watch Ronald Reagan's inauguration. Um, and it was something I always was fascinated by. I loved, you know, read a lot of history in high school, did all the student government stuff, did all the model Congress stuff, did Boys State, was an Eagle Scout, um, you know, played football. Uh, just, uh, you know, it's just kind of a all-American upbringing in this blue-collar town in, in New Jersey in the 70s and the 80s. And yeah. um, was captivated by it all. Yeah. And so you then went to the University of Delaware. Um, I imagine you were active in in politics there. When you left the University of Delaware, you uh, ran an AG's race in Kentucky. How did you go from Jersey to Delaware to Kentucky? There's some apocryphal story about me from the University of Delaware days that a professor was quoted as saying that he recalled me wearing... um, campaign buttons to class and you know part of part of my story in college is i don't recall going to class very often to be honest <laughs> at the university of delaware i was i was not a was not a stellar college student um 
to say the least. I definitely never wore a button to a class, but by senior year, I had started working on a on a campaign for a gentleman named B. Gary Scott, who was a real estate mogul businessman who was uh, running for governor, and I was the driver and travel aide. And you know, eventually, you know, got a full time job on the on the campaign. And when that was over, I moved to Philadelphia. I worked briefly for one of the great media consultants. Um, you know, in the Republican Party, a great guy named Chris Matola. And um, and so it was back in the days, um, you know, that if there was an ad, you know, you had a you basically you had to ship it or you had to hand deliver it. And I remember uh, being tasked with bringing these cassettes from Philadelphia, where we were, to New York City. And all I had to do was get on the train and bring the cassettes there. And somehow I lost the cassettes on the train. And so that was the end of my employment with Chris Matola, who's a who's a good friend to this day. But it was a great experience in the context of, you know, learning to grab your ears and pull your head out of your ass. It was the first job I was ever, ever fired from. Um, I, um, you know, when that was over, that was the 94 cycle. I um, I wound up working you know, got a job, talked my way into it with one of the great characters I've ever met in politics, who was a uh, guy named Will T. Scott, who ran for attorney general in um, in Kentucky, um, was a, uh, w- went on to become an associate justice of the Kentucky Supreme Court. I'm still in touch with him. But I, at that moment in my life, when I went to, when I went to Kentucky, I had been, I had been to Arizona and the, the furthest west I, I had ever gone in my life until about 1991 was Hershey, Pennsylvania. And I, um, I, my dad took me on a work trip to Arizona. I spent time in California in, in 94, 93, 94. And so I'm this kid from New Jersey, 23, 24 years old, and you know, pull up into Pikeville, Kentucky. And part of my deal was that I had a apartment that I was supposed to get. And when I got there, candidate met me, he said, nah, because you're going to stay with me. And Will T and I, the first night, his wife at the time was with her parents in Florida. And he had a cooler with about 50 Budweiser's in it. And we sat and we watched last year's Daytona 500 with um, him pausing and restarting the video you know, explaining to me the intricacies of, of NASCAR and live for months, right, in the Daniel Boone Motor Inn in Pikeville, Kentucky, between two hookers um, who were working the, the what, they, what they called the four-lane in Kentucky, um, you know, the four-lane highway, which the coal trucks moving up and down it, um, you know, up into, you know, towards Lexington and back, you know, into towards West Virginia. And, you know, I'd see them every morning, you know, as I was going to work and they were coming home from theirs. And it was just a, it was a hell of an experience for like a 24, 25 year old. Well, getting, getting the Daytona 500, you know, introductory class must've been actually pretty good for politics in Kentucky. Yeah, no doubt. Um, you know, and I had these experiences, you know, kind of in that early part of my career as an itinerary campaign manager. I had a um, in a Mitsubishi Eclipse. Um, I owned uh, a stereo, which got stolen in Kentucky. I had one big pot, one big spoon in my clothes, right? Those were all my possessions for many, many years. And I would take the eclipse to, you know, whatever campaign there was. And I was, you know, I, I lived in Alabama, I lived in Ohio, I lived in Indiana, lived in Kentucky, but I, I really expanded my horizons culturally um, and came to have a great appreciation for how vast, how beautiful, how diverse, you know, this big country of ours is. Um, when I grew up in a town in New Jersey, I, I remember one of my, you know, defining childhood experiences or traumas was I, you know, I asked my mom, I said, why, why doesn't dad go to church with us? I know he's friends with Father John. He plays in the card game with him. And my mother, you know, took this deep sigh and uh, 
and uh you know just this dejected look and she just looked at me and she goes your 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 father your father is a protestant must have been eight or nine years old what so what's a protestant you know that you know there were there were three there were there were three religions right you know it was the african americans and it was a largely majority black town on the you know in the town next to mine you know they were all baptists there were catholics and jews right that was uh and you know everybody was either italian or irish um in the in the town i grew up in and so it was a uh you know it was an ethnic culture 25 miles from new york city uh working class town and it you know it was a it's a small slice of america and i and i got to see through my 20s you know a much bigger slice of america and really came to have an appreciation about you know the the different the different regions the cultures the idiosyncrasies of the country and i've and i've loved it ever since and so you were going campaign to campaign uh state to state for years uh you had your wins i'm sure you had losses mm-hmm. along the way what did you you know take from that experience about what it means to be a campaign staffer well you know, a point, a point, you know, I'm 49 now. I mean, a, a point that I, you know, that I, when I talk at colleges or, you know, to young people, you know, the, the fundamental lesson, you know, I learned during those years is, is you have to be able to make decisions and you have to be accountable for them. You know, political campaigns are a decision-making business. And, you know, outside of the, outside of the military, you know, I, I literally cannot think of a another vocation which imposes so much decision making on young people, right? With a with a lot of with a lot of responsibility, you learned how to manage budgets, to do the work of fundraising. Um, you get an amateur psychology degree, I think, to some level and i think everybody who has success in politics at a campaign level is a pretty good armchair psychiatrist as you deal with the candidates the families and people under a lot of pressure um through a really strange and unique process which is which is an american election you know whether it's at a local county state you know federal level yeah, you know, I have this uh, part of the animating idea behind this podcast is that being a staffer is phenomenal training for almost anything. And you've put your finger on an element that I hadn't quite been able to articulate yet, which is that decision making at a very young age. And you live with the consequences and you learn from them. Um, you know, you got you try to think through every you know scenario uh, of things that you're struggling with. And then you got to deal with the consequences. Um, I, I do have this. Uh, I normally ask it at the end, but I have a segment that I like to ask people called "In the Vault." It is a time when you royally screwed up, and so whatever decision you made came out exactly the wrong way. Um, what did you learn from it, and how did you recover? Here's the here's the thing. If I if I uh, if I look back on the totality of my my career, I had this. I, I'll, I'll reg- if I live to be a hundred fifty years old, right? I'll 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 regret this to the to the moment of my to the moment of my death. When um, contrary to to popular opinion out there, um, you know, I did not vet was not responsible for vetting and was not involved in the vetting of, of Sarah Palin. When I took over the McCain campaign, um, I was given responsibility for everything except for two things, the completion of the convention and the vice presidential selection process. And that was led by the campaign manager, Rick Davis. And remember being at McCain's ranch as Sarah Palin's SUV pulled down uh, the road, and I was there with Mark Salter and John McCain. And McCain says to us, "Boys, come on!" And he goes, "Let's go talk to her." And I said this to John McCain, and I'll regret it for as long as I live. I said, um, 
I think it's totally inappropriate for us to be in the meeting with her. I said, this is your first presidential decision. Uh, you and you alone have to take her measure and decide if she's prepared and qualified to take the oath of office. Um, and we shouldn't be in the meeting for that. And we weren't. And the only person alive who has any idea what the two of them talked about is Palin. And uh, let's just say, to put it mildly, um, never going to know, you know, from a straight answer perspective, what, you know, whatever the hell they said to each other. But I, I know that if I was in the meeting, um, I would have I would have tied myself to the bumper of the car if necessary to prevent it from leaving with her as the vice presidential nominee in it, um, given what I found out later. And I'll always regret that, um, you know, very, very much. You know, if I could do one thing over, because I, I think, you know, had we been in the meeting, we you know, would have said there's just no way. And unfortunately, we weren't. And, you know put a idea or had this notion of the way things should be as opposed to the way they are and, you know, made a, made a bad judgment. We should have been in the room for that meeting. You know, I was, I was going to ask about the McCain campaign later, but since we're talking about it, when you joined that campaign, it was, um, you know, sort of left for dead. There, there weren't uh, many people on it. It was shedding staff, and you turned it around. Um, somebody described it from corpse to contender, uh, and obviously he he was the nominee. Um, take us inside those moments uh, when you're at the depths. Nobody knows whether you're going to uh, get out of it. How do you keep a team together and a candidate motivated uh, to keep going forward every day in the hope that something? You know, you'll cut your lightning in a bottle. Well, you know, I, I um, you know, so John called me and it's there's a there's a movie about this called Game Change. And the beginning of the movie opens up with, you know, a call that happened. I was I was walking my dog, um, a Labradoodle. He's one of the first Labradoodles. His name was Murphy. And I was living in Northern California and the campaign had fallen apart. Everyone had quit. It was in chaos and McCain called me and he said, you know, will you help me, boy? And, um, you know, the call came and answered the phone. It was just right out of the movie. And, you know, and I was walking and he, he goes, they're fucking me, boy. He goes, all of them. And I said, who's that, sir? And he goes, you know, <laughs> and it went, and it went on and it went on from there. And he made clear that he wasn't getting out. And the point that I made to him is, well, he didn't need to worry about losing anymore. Right. He was done. It was over. It was, you know, he was in last place. You know, he'd gone from front runner to finished and um, went up hiking with that dog in the, you know, up around Lake Tahoe for a day or two and came back and had a perspective on how the race would unfold and turned out to be largely correct. And, you know, and I was proud of the role that I played, you know, mostly, you know, the, you know, the comeback was a result of John's perseverance. There were, you know, didn't do it alone. There were, there were a lot of people in, involved in the, in the comeback and we called the race right. And, and he came back and then I was put in charge of everything, as I just said, except the VP vetting and the, in the convention in the summer when he was behind double digits. And, you know, we were a couple points up until the global economic collapse in September and that just basically finished the campaign. I mean, the, the reality is, is that there's two types of elections. There's change elections, more of the same elections. And you know, 2008 was a change election. There's only been three instances at that point in the last 108 years where the, incumbents pres the incumbent president's party had received a third term. It happened with Herbert Hoover following Coolidge. It happened with FDR succeeding himself. And it happened with George Herbert Walker Bush after Reagan, you know, and that was an election where Reagan had a 62% approval level and President Bush's approval level was in the mid thirties. And you know, we were doing okay surviving that, but when the economy blew up and the mortgage crisis went down, that was just, it was just the end of the line. You know, we couldn't overcome that. We were outspent by a couple hundred million dollars. 
And, uh, you know, we lost that we lost that election. And I've had the privilege to, you know, be involved at you know the highest level of two presidential campaigns. We won one and we lost one. And I always tell people, you know, both are better outcomes than ever having to do a third one again. So that's my uh, <laughs> but, I, but I do. But everyone ought to if, you know, every young person ought to if they have the opportunity you know, try to, try to, try to get on one. It's as, it's as fun a thing, as important a thing that you could, you know, ever be involved in. I think it's just a terrific experience. Uh, since we're talking about uh, presidentials, we're obviously in, in the midst of one. Some news was made today. Um, three letters have been uh, released today with signatures from alumni of the George W. Bush administration, from the McCain 2008 campaign and the Romney 2012 campaign. You are part of the Lincoln Project, which you know, didn't exist uh, you know, probably a year ago. Um, today is recognized as a leading voice of Republicans and former Republicans who are urging you know, all Americans to vote against Donald Trump. When did you, what was the turning point for you in leaving your party, which you had, you know, dedicated your professional life to, and I'm sure had great affection for, but at a certain point knew you had to step away. When was that? Well, so I I was, Trump, going all the way back to the moment he came down the escalator, Trump credits me with being the first person on television when everyone said he was a clown and a joke as being the first person to say he could win and would have a, would have a big impact, the Republican nomination. And I had had my, you know, the first time that Donald Trump called me a loser was in 2012 when I pointed out that he was the head clown in the Republican clown car. And I'd been critical of Romney for engaging with Trump at all. And I had criticized his, overt racism, Trump's with regard to the birther nonsense. And, you know, despite that, you know, Trump had asked me to run that campaign on three different occasions. And, um, and I, uh, it's not something I would ever, I would ever do. But as we, as we moved through the campaign and he began to question the legitimacy of the outcome, which I found abhorrent, when I was watching a Republican convention, seeing a former lieutenant general of the United States Army leading the crowd and chants of lock them up, I called it banana republicanism at that at that moment, which was kind of the first hints of the assaults on the rule of law, you know, that were that were to come. Um, I found Trump to be disgraceful. I found the collaboration and the surrendering of agency and principle to him to be disgusting. But it wasn't until 2018 that I made the determination that I just can't be in this political party anymore. And from my perspective, it had become irredeemable on the issue of the child incarcerations on the border and the family separation policy. And I viewed it as a profoundly moral issue. And Donald Trump had, if you go back now to the 2018 campaign, he invented out a whole cloth, this notion of this caravan that he portrayed as an advancing panzer division about to break through the southern border of the United States, when in fact these were poor, desperate people, refugees. And and by the way, just to make clear, we're a sovereign nation. We must have a border. We should know who's in the country. We need to control who does come into the country. And not every poor person who wants to live in the United States can be admitted into into the country. Just it's not it's not reality. So I'm not I'm not making an argument that every person who arrived at the southern border should be admitted into the country. However, when when those people encounter their first American, particularly one that's in uniform with an American flag on their shoulder, those those parents should know they're safe and that their children are safe. 
and that they made it to safety, that the hour of danger is over, not that the trauma is beginning. And I thought it was shameful. I thought it disgraced the country, the values of the country, and the separation of moms and children harkens to the worst abuses and the darkest moments in the history of the country when you can look to the separation of families that took place on the slave auction blocks or the separation of families under Indian policy in the 1800s on the reservations. And that was it for me. And I think I had an element of stubbornness because, you know, one of the things that I had gone through was a crisis of faith in my life over the sex abuse scandals in the Catholic Church as a Catholic. And I left the faith. I left the I left the religion for it. And it was an institution at one point that had a lot of meaning in my life. And to lose a second institution that had a lot of a lot of meaning in my life. Uh, was a really was a really hard choice. And, um, you know, I really appreciate, you know, my very good friend Michael Steele's position on this. And and I, 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 I've come to a different conclusion, but I but I understand where Michael's coming from. And, and Michael's position with regard to the party is like, I'll be the last guy who turns the lights out. Like, I'm not getting run out of the Republican Party that I've been a member of for 40 plus years because of Donald Trump. And I, I appreciate that. I appreciate that position and the stubbornness of it. But for me, right, I, I needed to disassociate from from an institution that I've that I've come to believe that if it's to have any redemption, it literally has to be burned to the ground and purified the way that forest fires do that to the forest. And despite the ca- catastrophe we're watching out in. California, which is abnormal. You know, it's important to understand that there is a normal cycle of forest fire, and it's how the forest becomes purified and how it comes back to life in the life cycle that we see in nature. And, um, you know, that that's what's going to happen and have to happen if there's to be any decent center-right party. You know, Trumpism, is going to have to be completely repudiated. And, and I just can't say enough about how un-American and how disturbing it is to see one of the two great political parties in the country become fully a cult of personality, that there's not a platform or even a pretense of one in this election proves what all of us have been worried about, is that there's no principle other than veneration of Donald Trump. You know, the Republican Party exists now as a fully as a as a cult of personality. Um, and it is an autocratic personality, an illiberal personality at the head of increasingly an autocratic and illiberal movement. You know, you um, you speak so authentically and powerfully um, about the principles here that are at stake. And one thing that has really depressed me over these last few years is watching just what you touched on there at the end. Other elected officials, other members of the party, and frankly, staff, bend to the will of this one individual. And it has happened so quickly and so deeply. Um, it's scary, number one. And I also want to you know, reach out to some of, you know, young staffers on the Hill who may, for, you know, very fine reasons, you know, believe that the Republican Party must be saved, could be, you know, improved a la Michael Steele, um, you know, hold dear the principles of strong defense and lower taxes, you know, et cetera. Um, But what do you say to those, those folks who maybe at the more junior level, working on the Hill or on campaign someplace. They love politics. They find it meaningful. They want to be a part of it. They don't love Trump. They don't like what he does or says, but they think that they can distance themselves from that and still work successfully in a career in politics in the Republican Party. What do you say to those folks? There's there's no such thing as a Republican American or a Democratic American. Right. There's 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 just being an American. And 
Here's what it means to be an American. We, we are a unique country in all the history of the world because we are the only country in the world that's founded on the power of an idea. And that idea is a perfect one and the ideal that is born from it is also perfect. And it's revolutionary. It represents a before and after moment in human history. And that moment is this, when the mind of man put to paper these revolutionary words, all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, including life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This, this is as radical a statement that has ever been put to paper in all the sweep of human history. It's one of the most profound before and after moments in human history. We, we know, of course, that there was imperfection around the application of that idea because it did not extend to everybody. The story of the country has been the story of the struggle to close the gap between the perfection of the idea and the ideal and the flawed reality of the country. A hundred years ago yesterday was the hundredth anniversary of women's right to vote. The enfranchisement of everyone under the umbrella of that idea has been the work of generations. It's been paid for in blood and suffering. When Martin Luther King came to the Lincoln Memorial on August 28th of 1963, he marched under an American flag coming to claim the promissory note that had been denied to black people in America for so long. And that struggle continues. And what politics is about and should be about is the perfection and perfecting of the American Union, not about the zero-sum accumulation of power. And if you're part of a political movement that is detached from ideas and principles, then what you are part of is an organized conspiracy for the purposes of attaining and holding power for the advancement of self-interest that has nothing to do with the ideas of making the country stronger and more just. And what I would say to them is that Americans aren't just connected together in this moment in time, but we're connected to each other through the generations. And for a very short time, we all have the privilege of being involved in the work of stewarding our nation, where we become the trustees of the great inheritance paid for with blood and suffering, the great inheritance that's been given to us, our birthright as Americans, right? To be an American it is the greatest gift. It means you've won the lottery if you're born here, if you get to come here, if you're lucky enough. And the job is to make sure that we hand off a country that's stronger, better, and freer to our kids and to our grandkids than the one we found. And what I would say to young people doing this is that politics is always, as you advance up the chain, a clash between idealism and cynicism. Where's the line of compromise? What are you willing to do that violates your principles in order to win so that you can enact the policies that you think are right? 
you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not naive about any of this, but I will, I will say this as having gone through a presidential campaign. If you had said to me at the beginning of the McCain campaign, explain to me, and I was, I was 37 years old. I'm 49 now, so I'm, I'm marginally wiser, I suppose. Um, if you had said to me then, what's the difference between integrity and loyalty? I wouldn't have understood the question at a base level, and I certainly didn't understand the difference. But integrity and loyalty aren't the same thing. And in integrity must always supersede any concept of loyalty to anyone or anything, because absent integrity, you can become very easily lost. And there are a lot of people in this era who have wound up lost and detached from everything that they claim to have believed not so long ago. And the people I'm talking about here are the Marco Rubios and the Lindsey Grahams of the world. And I think their conduct in this era has been detestable. And anybody who works in politics should understand that they're there to make the country better and to be fidelitous to the constitutional oaths that the people they're working for take, or if they're congressional staffers or White House staffers or commissioned officers at the White House or aspire to be one day, that they themselves will take. That is so well put. And even in the in the the day-to-day conduct, there are there are of course written rules that you have to follow and laws that you have to follow, but there's also a a set of unwritten rules that do exist in politics and in government service. And those unwritten rules have just frayed very badly, in in my opinion, over these last few years. The sort of win at all costs, you know, Roger Stone, Paul Manafort uh, mentality, do anything with somebody at the top who gives permission and pardons to, you know, to that. Um, How do you, what would be your advice, guidance to staffers who are in the midst of campaigns and maybe are at that decision point, right, where they, if they do something wrong, they may win, but there is no express prohibition on it. It's just, you know, out of bounds. It's a a hit below the belt. Ethics and integrity matter, and it's a tough business, and there's never been a genteel era of American politics. Paul Manafort was functionally a Russian agent. Roger Stone is the criminal. You don't want to be a agent of a hostile foreign power and you don't want to be a criminal. It's not, it's not worth it. You know, democracy requires one side being willing to lose. The, the person who addressed Barack Obama as Mr. President-elect that mattered wasn't David Axelrod or my friend David Pluff, both friends actually, but I, you know, but were my friends David and David, it was John McCain, right? It's it's the loser who grants legitimacy to the winner with a concession that renews the peaceful transition of power under the deeply held democratic belief that we'll get you next time. And so if you go into this with a nihilistic attitude, if you, if you believe that people who disagree with you about marginal tax rates are traitors, if you believe your fellow Americans are your enemies on the basis of different opinions, then you don't understand that dissent is the most fundamental of American qualities. And you probably should not be in this profession in the same way that a teacher who hates kids should not be teaching them. You mentioned David and David as friends, and I'm, I'm sure they and many others around the country are friends of both parties. 
But, uh, you know, when you decided to leave the party, that's an organization, but you also stepped away, I'm sure, from relationships, um, you know, campaign friendships, professional friendships um, that were strained and maybe even broke. How has that been for you on a personal level? I, I've lost a couple of friendships that that have meaning to me over this. But but by and large, my friendships aren't defined by politics. Um, there are people that I love very much in my family to my deepest disappointment or going to vote for Donald Trump. And I find it upsetting and we agree not to really discuss it or to talk about it. But, um, you know, in this moment, um, I'm acting in a way that's consistent with my convictions and my sense that's this is the right thing, you know, for the for the country. Um, you know, I, I think we're in a despicable and dangerous moment. I think this is the most important election um, you know, since since 1864, um, I, I was a huge fan of The Americans, the TV show, and uh, yeah. thought thought it was one of the great TV shows ever made. But I always joked around as a child of Ronald Reagan's 1980s. If I found out that my parents were Russian spies in 1985, and there was an FBI agent that lived across the street, I absolutely would have turned them in. A hundred percent. And I, I, I love the country. And I think the country's in grave danger, real trouble. And my actions are consistent with my belief on that. And the chips will fall where they may. You know, FDR had a quote asking people to judge him by his enemies. And for me, I'm very comfortable that, you know, my declared enemies, um, the Mark Levins of the world, the Rush Limbaugh's of the world, uh, the Janine Pirro's of the world, the Ann Coulter's, the Laura Ingram's, uh, Breitbart, the white nationalists like Mike Cervanovich, and all of them. I don't want to be with those people. I detest them. And I detest them because they've done so much damage to this country. And, 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 and they are an affront to everything that I believe in. You mentioned having family members who are planning to vote for Trump. You've got them. I've got them. Everybody does. Um, and I'm also, as a Democrat, I'm always looking to add to the Democratic coalition, right? And and most campaigns are focused on that, you know, in those independents in the middle. But I think there is a real opportunity to bring disaffected Republicans into the Democratic coalition. You, as one of the founders of the Lincoln Project, are also speaking to that audience. What, do you know, what do we as Democrats who want to attract, uh, you know, disaffected Republicans to our side of the ticket and maybe even permanently into our party, what do we get wrong? I think it speaks to a, well, look, I, I think that if you, if you go out, I live in Utah now. But if you spend time in the Intermountain West and you you drive down a highway in a Wyoming, a Montana, um, if you understand, you know, as someone who's lived in California for a long time, how important water issues are, land management issues are, you, you can't help but when you're driving on these roads to ponder do you really think that anyone in Washington, D.C. is in touch with how these people live their lives? Right. And what I would say to Democrats is 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 this is that and I, I believe this to the to the core of my being. There, there's nobody in America and by nobody, I mean, no one. Who walks into an office of local government 
or county government looking for a permit or a dog license or has to get a driver's license at the state or any interaction. Federal, state, local, county government that walks out of that experience saying, geez, I want to give these people more power, more control over my life and more money. And so I think where we look at how deep trouble, how, how deep the trouble we're in as a country. And you look at the amount of Americans that need help and you look at the performance of how we deliver services, whether it's healthcare, whether it's education, hundred other issues. How does the government do in the delivery of those services? And as a country, as we're approaching $30 trillion in debt, which we'll get to before not too much longer, and you look at the annual deficits, what, what it means is we're out of money to waste. And if we're gonna deliver a service, it needs to be delivered with the efficiency of an Amazon or a Federal Express or another company. And there's no group of people in America who should have more of a rooting interest in the effective and efficient delivery of services to the American people than the party that stands for the proposition, much more so than the other party, that there is a fundamental role for government to play in the delivery of those services. And so the failure of government to do that, the cynicism which rises because of it, has been a lot of the fuel supply to Donald Trump and Trumpism. And so the Democratic Party that's connected to working class people is the Democratic Party that wins elections in this country. And, and I thought that Joe Biden was spectacular in his speech addressing the whole of the country, including people that disagreed with him in this terrible moment. But I, I was asked at a dinner about two years ago, it was mostly Democrats, some prominent ones, a lot of them involved in campaigns for various candidates at that time. And, and I was asked a question at the dinner, what advice would I have for Democratic candidates running, running for president? And I said, I asked to think about it for a minute. And then this, this is what I said. So I, I want you to think about three candidates for president, all Democrats running for office. And there's a rural example of this, but we'll, we'll, we'll make it an urban one because we're all sitting in New York City for the, for the dinner where I said this at. And so, so the first candidate walks by a huge construction site, big building, 80 stories going up in Manhattan, hundreds, if not a thousand people working on the construction site. And the first Democratic candidate just walks by that construction site and they don't see a single person who's working on it. Those people are invisible to them. Second candidate, those people fall in the category of what FDR talked about as the invisible man or the forgotten man. Second Democratic candidate walks by the site and they see people smoking cigarettes with tattoos and their reaction is these people are deplorable. These are working people. These are Trump people. Thank God these people won't be in the Hamptons this summer. Third Democratic candidate walks by that construction site and what they see is the dignity of labor. What they see are the backbone of the country. What, what they see are the people, the men and women who build things, who make things, who have guts and daring, who are welding at 800 feet in the air, doing things that in a million years that candidate couldn't do and no one on his staff could do. And, and that Democrat is the one that John Kennedy and Harry Truman would have recognized as Democratic candidates. And the, the seeding right, of, of working people to the Republican Party and then the accompanying susceptibility of those people who have legitimate grievances to Trumpism, I think has been an unfortunate and tragic element 
of the collapse of a really important aspect of the Democratic coalition that I hope is renewed over the course of the Biden campaign. And there's every evidence to suggest that Joe Biden is in the middle of putting together one of the largest, broadest, most diverse political coalitions in American history for a presidential campaign where there's room for everybody under the tent. And what we're all going to have to figure out how to do is disagree with each other agreeably and to not question every person who disagrees with you with your with with you to question their intentions and and start to put the focus back on the country and how do we fix some problems that roughly 70 to 80 you know 85% of the country believes on the conceptual framework of how to fix them whether it's gun issues or immigration so on that, you have, we've talked a lot about your uh, campaign and political experience, but you've got quite a bit of experience working uh, in government as well. You worked for George W. Bush uh, in the White House uh, as, and also as an advisor to Vice President Cheney. And you also worked on Capitol Hill uh, for, I think it was Billy Towson when he was chairman of the House Energy and Commerce Committee. It was, uh, it was Bliley. Bliley. Okay. Thank you. Um, when... You know, if the election goes the way I hope it does and the way you hope it does, there is this reconciliation that needs to happen and a working spirit needs to uh, uh, take over uh, on both ends of Pennsylvania Avenue so that we can get things done. What, having been in some of those offices in the Rayburn House office building down, uh, down the street at the White House, what would be your advice to people who are taking those seats and how they should uh, conduct themselves in reaching out to a party that has, has you know, again, if the if the Republicans are not uh, in charge, or if they're, uh, you know, kind of deleveraged in their power, um, how do we get them, uh, you know, into a a, a cooperative state? Um, and and what sort of choices do Democrats need to be prepared? Uh, well, to I make? think I think that. Um... What I hope happens is that the Republicans will lose the majority in the Senate and that um, Joe Biden will be elected president. I, b I believe that will happen. And then I believe Democrats will have total control of of uh, the government in Washington. And what I pray for, literally pray for, is for the wisdom of restraint which is an underappreciated virtue of political leadership, which is to understand that the attainment of power should not necessarily be the moment to maximize, right? The furthest reaches and the most controversial elements of an agenda. We, we are in the middle of one of the most profound crises in the history of the country with an out of control pandemic, we're the leading math and science country in the world and we're the epicenter of coronavirus death and suffering because of the incompetence and ineptitude of Donald Trump, right? The President Biden has to get his arms around this immediately before anything in this country, right? The fundamentals of American life can go back to anything that approaches a, a sense of normalcy. Um, I, I remember being in being in high school and being at football practice and the coach saying, you know, you guys are like a week away from like touching footballs. Right. You're going to you're going to learn to line up and like snap the ball. Right. You're going to learn to not jump off sides. Right. There's just there's like where our government is so broken. Right. We, we just need to have some easy victories and successes. Right. We, we, we need to see a renewal of the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act and election security legislation passed that that real penalties for foreign interference. Um, one of the things that I find completely disturbing about this convention isn't just the, the Republican convention isn't just the nonstop lying and gaslighting, which is profound, but the total lawlessness. These, these images from, the, this is illegal from the White House, the use of the White House, use of taxpayer funds, it is, it is illegal. 
And what, what you see at a presidential level, right, at a, at a party level on the question of appropriateness and illegality is go fuck yourself. We can do whatever we want because we're in charge. And once someone makes that determination or conclusion, you are outside the rule of law, which means democracy is in trouble. And this is something that this is something that George Bush was directionally right on, but was practically wrong about when he talked about the spread of democracy around the world. And the idea in the Bush administration was the answer to autocracy, right? The remedy to people flying buildings, flying airplanes into buildings, right? Is, is democracy. This doesn't happen at a democratic society. So, so what do we need to do? We need to have elections. Well, so let's say then you have an election in the West Bank, right? Who wins? Hamas wins. Or in Gaza, Hamas wins. Is Hamas a democratic organization? Of course not, right? Who, who wins in the Egyptian elections? The Muslim Brotherhood wins. And then what happens? The point is what, what enables a democracy isn't an election. The predicate for a democracy is the rule of law. Absent a tradition of a rule of law, the election yields to majoritarianism, which is not small L, small D, liberal democracy. It's inconsistent with small R republicanism as a form of, as a form of governance. And so the assaults on the rule of law that you've seen this last week are deeply, deeply, deeply disturbing. And this stuff has to get put back in the box. And it's going to be a project that takes place over many, many years. Your Trumpism needs to be repudiated and defeated. We, we now have people walking around, militia groups with AR-15s on streets, Fundamentally important question to contemplate about is how that 17-year-old got from Indiana to Kenosha with his AR-15, why he went there, how he was radicalized. And make no mistake, he was radicalized. He was radicalized in a way that's not so different than the way a young man who's a loser and lonely and on the outskirts of society gets recruited into ISIS or to Al-Qaeda. He was radicalized. This is going to take a long time in this country to get in the box and to get that box sealed back under a concrete sarcophagus of the nature of the type that they put over Chernobyl. And, and it's going to be the defining fight in American politics over the next 20 years. Uh, Steve, I couldn't agree with you more uh, about so much of what you've said today, including that last bit um, from the virtue of restraint um, and on. I mean, it it is going to take a lot of work and a lot of time to correct what's been done here um, and get us back to a scenario where we can disagree and still be constructive and respect one another within the bounds of the rule of law. Um, I'm, I'm running out of time, uh, and I could talk to you all day. I have one last question for you, and it, it is a segment that I like to ask all of my guests. If I were to build a Hall of Fame to staffers and put it on the National Mall, you've worked with so many staffers over the years in so many different capacities. Who would you nominate to be in the Staffer Hall of Fame and why? I would nominate Mark Salter, who was John McCain's longtime chief of staff, who more than any other person was an indispensable moral compass, friend, wise counselor to John McCain, truly his muse, his voice, his alter ego, and to large sense, a type of angel 
sitting on John McCain's shoulder. And, you know, I'll always remember this. And you talk about the accumulation of wisdom as you went on. We went for a we went for a walk after McCain had met with Sarah Palin and it was Cindy McCain, Mark and I. And the two finalists were were Tim Pawlenty and uh, and Sarah Palin at that point. And, uh, you know, both Mark and I had been enthusiastic about the idea of John McCain picking Joe Lieberman, John taking a one term pledge, basically saying that, you know, I have one last mission at 72 years old. If the American people honor me with it. And I've asked my great friend, a patriotic American, Joe Lieberman, to be my wingman. And we're going to solve this country's four biggest problems. We're going to do it in the next four years. We're going to take a time out from the poisonous partisanship. He was going to say about Barack Obama, I like Barack Obama. I have no doubt that he'll be the president of the United States one day, but he's not ready yet. That was going to be the campaign message, and Lindsey Graham leaked word about it, and we knew we couldn't get Lieberman through the convention unless we did it as a surprise and were able to control the control the kind of the reaction and stay on offense. And so that was out the window, and it was it was Pelenny or Palin, and we went for this walk, and McCain asked me to make the case for Palin and asked Mark to make the case for Pelenny. And I said, well, I, I said, I'm not going to do that. Um, I said, here's the deal. You know, Palin is a political risk. We don't, we don't know how she'll perform, but for sure, if we don't come out of this convention ahead, right, we have, we have no chance in the fall, right? You're, we're going to lose by three to four points you know, and we wound up losing by six or seven in the context of the in the context of the the economic collapse. But, you know, we we made the case. Mark and I both talked about it. And, and my assessment of Pelenny as a politician was was correct. Um, and, you know, that from how he performed in the 2012 race. But I'll never forget Mark Salter standing there and saying to John, you know, John, um, there are worse things than losing an election. You can you can lose your reputation. And, you know, I think Mark at the time was 52 or 53. So he was a lot closer to my age today than he than he was then. But I, I was 37 and I was sitting there. And I was, I had a, I had a gleam in my eye. I, I wanted victory. Uh, I was ready to take the risk. I was, I wanted this to work. And, and Mark had a reservoir of calm and wisdom that I don't think I'm there yet, but I've moved a lot closer to, I hope, over these, over these ensuing, over these ensuing years. But I, I will always remember that moment and going back to the beginning of the program, what you would, what you would say to, to young people who were involved in this, and it was something that I didn't understand at 37, um, but I understood a couple months after that. And that that is, there are worse things than losing losing an election, and and there's a lot of bad things that can happen to the country, a lot of bad things that can result from a campaign, in the power. And the decision making that you have at a at a young age, you should be mindful of the consequences of it all. And so, um, you know, the, the the person who I've always viewed as one of the finest people I've ever known and worked with, you know, and, and my nominee would be Mark Salter for those reasons. Steve Schmidt, uh, you are a deeply honorable person, and your insights are important um, and and profound. Um, uh, you are truly a staffer of the highest order, and um, I, I can't express my appreciation enough for what you're doing today and spending time with us today. So thank you. you. My pleasure. Thank you. Well, friends, I can smell the jet fumes at National Airport, which means another episode of Staffer is adjourned. 
I want to thank you all for listening to the only show created for and about the people who work in government and politics at any level. I do have a quick favor to ask. Please follow, subscribe, and like the show on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Positive reviews are everything in this business, I'm told. And please make sure to sign up for episode alerts at staffershow.com and check out Staffer Show on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks all.